from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Stephen Winnick, and I'm here with my colleague, John Finn. Hello, everyone. We're folklorists at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. John is the head of research and programs, and I'm a folklife specialist, as well as the creator of the blog Folklife Today, which you can find at blogs.loc.gov folklife. And today on the Folklife Today podcast, we're going to talk about some more hidden folklorists. As we've explained before, hidden folklorists includes people whose contributions to folklore are generally overshadowed by their work in other areas. So famous novelists like Ralph Ellison or filmmakers like Nicholas Ray. Right. But in the idea for hidden folklorists, I was also inspired by the book and film Hidden Figures and some public events we held at the Library of Congress, which focused on that story. So there are also hidden folklorists whose folklore work was insufficiently recognized because of racism or sexism or other forms of discrimination. So we're heading to Louisiana to look at the work of three people we can consider hidden folklorists. And this group of people has hidden folklorists of both types. So does anything spring to mind when I mention the name E.A. McElhenney? Isn't that the signature on a bottle of Tabasco sauce? Exactly. E.A. McElhenney is the son of the man who invented Tabasco sauce, and his name used to be on every bottle. But he also collected spirituals. So he's one of our hidden folklorists. And the others are the women he collected from, Becky Elsie and Alberta May Bradford. Thanks to McElhenney, John and Alan Lomax also recorded Bradford and Elsie in 1934, and we have those recordings in the archive. And to help us talk about these three hidden folklorists, we've called on our friend Joshua Clegg Caffrey, who is the director of the Center for Louisiana Studies at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Hello, Josh. Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Uh, Thanks for having me. So I should point out that I first met Josh when he visited the archive as a member of the band Fufole back in the early 2000s. Was it 2006, Josh? Does that sound right? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, so some of his bandmates had older relatives who had been recorded by the Lomaxes back in 1934. And although there have been copies of those recordings in Lafayette since the 1980s, groups still like to come and visit the originals here sometimes. And at that time, Josh was also a student and an archivist working with those copies and many other recordings in the archive there at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. So, Josh, what was it like to work among such a rich storehouse of old recordings at a young age? It, it was wonderful. Um, I, I was working uh, on my master's degree in folklore, and um, and basically I was working cataloging um, archival materials, and uh, and I became really interested in the Lomax collections and other uh, other collections. Deeply fascinated with them, and uh, and also deeply fascinated with uh, with what what wasn't there and what wasn't known about the materials that I did have access to. You, you mentioned that we had we had copies of this archive uh, since the eighties, and that's true. But we didn't have everything, and we actually didn't have the English materials, which which I I think we're going to talk about today. So we didn't have the spirituals. Uh, we didn't have some of the blues. Uh, we had m- uh, mostly French materials. 
Now, as I understand it, Josh, and this predates me, a few years later, you returned to the library as a fellow at the John W. Kluge Center, and you used that fellowship to study these recordings in this collection more deeply. Can you tell us a little bit about your Kluge Fellowship? Sure. I uh, ended up writing my dissertation about the about the Lomax collection, um, and, uh, and and that dissertation later became a book. And, um, and it happened that right around the time my book was being published, I, uh, I, I, I won a, a, a fellowship at the Kluge, um, uh, center and, uh, and was able to spend a year at the, uh, at the American Folklife Center and the Kluge Center doing research into those materials, further research, I, I should say. Great. So tell us a little bit about your book, if you would. So basically it's, it's just, a. Uh, uh, a granular study, though not as granular as, as Steve has gotten in some of his blogs, but uh, but it's just a, uh, I wanted to really focus in on those 1934 recordings that the Lomaxes made here, John and Alan, partially because growing up around here as a musician and as a folklorist and just as someone interested in culture, they're almost like it's almost like the Pentateuch or something, you know, the, those Lomax, those that 1934 Lomax collection, you know, and and that's sort of what I inherited that that was kind of just, just core canon of materials, but I felt like it, it really hadn't be, been totally teased out what was really going on with a lot of, a lot of them, you know, and as, as you guys know better than I do, it's never going to be totally teased out. You know, there's always, yeah, there's always going to be more to learn, but, uh, but uh, I really wanted to, uh, to study the, the recordings in depth. I really wanted to give more of a, uh, more context, particularly to the, uh, to the French recordings, the traditional French recordings, which had been studied to some degree, but had never really been contextualized or researched uh, piece by piece or individually. Um, and then I wanted to get into the English materials, um, wh which hadn't really been studied by people around here much at all. And I thought helped provide a better context for uh, for what the vernacular music here was like. So so really, it's just a pretty, pretty much straight, you know, old school, almost like Victorian era uh, historic geographic swing at the 1934 Lomax collection, you know? Great. And we'll mention that the book is called Traditional Music in Coastal Louisiana. It's a great book too, I will say. Today, it's about 15 years on from when you first visited us at the Folklife Center. And you're now, as we mentioned, the director of the Center for Louisiana Studies. Uh, you've had the job for a couple of years, but congratulations. Oh, thank you. On, yeah. on landing such an appropriate job, which we isn't always easy for a folklorist. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I'm lucky that I landed up here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the center and its activities. Sure. We're, uh, we're part of the college of liberal arts here at the, uh, uh, university for, for, uh, university of Louisiana at Lafayette. And, uh, the center was started in the 1970s by a group of, uh, historians and folklorists who were really interested in, uh, in Louisiana studies in general, and, uh, who wanted to tell a more in-depth story about, about French Louisiana and, and our little, uh, neck of the woods, which is sometimes often often left out of these broader histories of, of how America came to be, you know. And so anyway, so they, they formed this uh, this academic center, which is orig originally just uh, um, professors basically here in the College of Liberal Arts. And um, it grew over the years from becoming a pretty academic institution to becoming, a, a, I suppose, a more public facing one. Um, we, we, we oversee the University of Louisiana at Lafayette Press, which is colloquially known as UL Press. We publish books, uh, trade books, but also academic books about, about, uh, about Louisiana and Louisiana studies. Um, we also are, oversee the archives, the same archives I worked in when I was a graduate student. And uh, we have a, a large collection, which is uh, 
particularly focused on Louisiana French and uh, Louisiana um, oral history and traditional music vernacular culture. And, uh, and we also do programs. Uh, we also have a programming wing, though that's been to some degree uh, impaired over the past year and a half, as everyone has been. Um, but those are kind of the, uh, the, uh, the three parts of, uh, of what we do. So I, I really love the job. I get to do, uh, get to work with books and making books and working with authors and uh, working with in- interesting thinkers and also working to, uh, as you guys do, to kind of further explore this, uh, the, the massive archives, you know, that, that we have. Well, let's talk about some of these recordings then. Um, as we've mentioned, the Lomaxes found out about Alberta Bradford and Becky Elsey from E.A. McElhenney. Josh, why might people know this name, E.A. McElhenney? Well, he's um, he's not the inventor of Tabasco per se, but he's really the the genius, the business genius who who popularized it throughout the world. I guess that's the way I think about it. He's an heir of the, uh, of the McElhenney family, which was one of the major families that owned Avery Island, um, which Steve has written a, a good bit about as well. He, uh, he was also just kind of a fascinating character beyond being a, a incredibly successful entrepreneur. He was a, he was a naturalist and a, and a conservationist and, uh, and a hidden folklorist as, as Steve has pointed out. And I think, I think Steve and I and other people have really probably only gotten to the tip of the iceberg of, of, hmm. of the hidden folklore that, uh, studies that that he was involved in you know yeah he did some amazing stuff founding you know one of the first bird sanctuaries in the country and um you know some of his failures are even interesting like he he uh was one of the farmers who introduced nutria to uh south louisiana thinking that that would be a good thing and then they got out of control and now you know that they're they've been a problem a problem invasive species but you know you can't always predict what's going to happen but He's had a big impact on the landscape there in various ways. Definitely, I think some people might say that that's kind of a a, a folk origin story of the of the nutria. You know, uh, he, you know he he did bring in the nutria. So did a lot of other people even before him. And, right, uh, but right. he was really so much more. No, he was just you know an outsized personality, and he was famously doing all these wild things on on Avery Island, just this raised coastal salt dome. You know, and it's like. What is old man McElhaney up to now, you know? Of course, the reason the Lomaxes knew him was his book of spirituals, which was called Before the War Spirituals, and it consisted of songs he collected from Alberta Bradford and Becky Elsey. So what can you tell us about that book? Uh, he says in the introduction to that book that he grew up listening to spirituals in, in the, the church, really, the uh, on Avery Island, which was sort of the, the plantation church from back, uh, back when it had been a, a sugar can sugarcane plantation. And, uh, he remembered hearing those, uh, spirituals when he was young. Now they wouldn't have really been before the war spirituals because he was born after the war, but he remembered hearing these, uh, these ancient spirituals, uh, this, this older kind of layer of, uh, spiritual singing, um, uh, that he remembered from childhood. And, and later on, he wanted to go back and kind of, uh, recapture that and, uh, and conserve it. You know, he saw, he saw he, at least to his mind, he, he felt like those, uh, those spirituals were being kind of papered over and forgotten by, by a newer, a newer breed of, uh, uh, of singing. And, um, and, and from what I understand, what he did is he, he, he contracted with a, a violinist, a classically trained violinist, uh, a musician from new Orleans. Uh, I'm forgetting his name, but, um, Henry, yeah. uh, Steve probably knows. Henry something. Yeah. Henry Werman. Yeah. And, um, and they, he got, he, uh, transcribed something on the order of a hundred and 110, 120, maybe more. Uh, I can't remember the exact number, uh, of the, of these spirituals, um, and, and put together 
put them together in in this book. It's and uh, you know we have a few of them luckily because the Lomaxes went out and, and recorded them, um, but they only recorded an, a handful, and uh, you know they were they were over, well over a hundred. So it's uh, uh it makes you think of that uh what's what's out there that we didn't we didn't capture you know we didn't hear. So here's a cool wrinkle I discovered when researching for the blog. It turns out that when he was planning his book, McElhenney sent the manuscript to the folklore collector Robert Winslow Gordon, who was the head of the Archive of Folk Song here at the Library of Congress from 1928 until Lomax took over the position in 1933. Gordon made a microfilm copy and returned it. So we actually have the microfilm at the Library of Congress. It lives over in the library's music division, where the archive also used to be, because they have microfilm readers in their performing arts reading room. So I went over there to have a look, and it turns out that for unknown reasons, McElhenney omitted seven items he'd collected from Bradford and Elsie from the published book. One was kind of an alternate version of a song that's in the book, but six aren't in the published book at all, including a version of Who Built the Ark, which is now common as a children's song about Noah's Ark. So these exist only in manuscript, the original probably among McElhenney's papers at Avery Island and the microfilm here at the Library of Congress. I put scans of those manuscript pages up at the blog, including sheets of music notation with words in what I think is Wehrman's handwriting. He wrote down, and Wehrman wrote down these songs, all of them from the singing of Becky Elsie and Alberta Bradford, apparently. That's like 110 songs that these right. two women both knew their memories were just prodigious and, and amazing. And that's one of the reasons why we consider them also to be sure hidden yeah. folklorists. They were the ones who kept this stuff. They were the ones who preserved it from their childhood all the way down to when uh, they were recorded by the Lomaxes in 1934. Definitely. And I think uh, Becky Elsie was in her, her late eighties, something at, right. at the time and, and, and that she still remembered, you know, that that many tunes, you know, is is incredible, and and yeah, that, I think that's a great point. You had to think of them as folklorists in their own in their own right. Certainly, they were the ones who who really kept it around in the first place. Now, Josh, the the connection between McElhenney and these two women, Becky Elsie and Alberta Bradford, um, is an important part of this story. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, my understanding is that. Uh, I believe it was Alberta Bradford actually grew up on every island and was actually a slave uh, of owned by the McElhenney family, um, at least when she was a young girl. I don't know if EA talks about this at length, but I assume that he knew her, you know, growing growing up. You know, I don't know that he talked about uh, having heard her sing, um, but he but he he apparently knew her and and he. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm forgetting exactly how he knew about Becky Elsie, but she actually lived, she actually lived um, a few miles away from uh, Avery on on an, an area called uh, Côte Gelée, which means the frozen uh, frozen coast or frozen hill, um, which is an interesting uh, an interesting an interesting thing. I'm, uh, that's, there's sort of various folk explanations for why it's ca- called that, uh, but we won't get into that here. But uh, but I believe that she at, at some point actually also came and worked at the uh, Avery Island salt uh, salt mines at least for a part of her time, even though they both had had lived on Avery Island at one time. Um, they were recorded in Lake Arthur, um, and there's some discrepancies in the in the cataloging about uh, about whether the recordings are made in Lake Arthur or Avery Island. I put them I put them in Iberia Parish in my book just because that's that's where 
they're primarily identified in the card catalog, but, but also noted that, that, that uh, on the recordings, you know, uh, Alan says we're in Lake Arthur uh, and there's all sorts of fun stuff like that in the Lomax collection, as you guys know. Um, so, so really that, yeah, they were in, they were in Lake, Lake Arthur, you know? Yeah. So um, let, let's hear that announcement of Alan's and, uh, and also hear one of the songs. The spirituals on this record were sung by Becky Elsie, 86, and Alberta Bradford, 73, who in their younger days were slaves on the Avery Island plantations. They recollected these songs over all these years and still have the wonderful voices to sing them as they should be sung. The spirituals that they've sung are to be found in Mr. E.A. McElhenney's book, Before the War Spirituals. Songs were recorded in Lake Arthur, Louisiana, in the month of June, 1934. <laughs> So, Steve, in writing your blog post on this, you got to the bottom of the mystery. Can you explain what you found? Well, I'll first mention that there was one more anomaly. So Josh already mentioned that the cards say these songs were recorded in Avery Island, but we heard that announcement saying Lake Arthur. The other anomaly is that the discs are out of order. Some of the songs were recorded on one side of disc 100 and the others on discs 105 and 106. There were other singers in other places recorded in between. So I was looking for any correspondence relating to these two questions. Where and in what sequence were these discs recorded? So did you find anything in our files? Nothing that I found, but it's also true that John A. Lomax's position at the Library of Congress was honorary. He was what they called in wartime years and the Depression a dollar-a-year man. He received a nominal payment, but what he really got was the ability to say he represented the Library of Congress when going in to record and the ability to publish any of the songs he collected. The Library of Congress also loaned him the equipment and the blank discs, but retained ownership of the equipment and the physical recordings. Lomax made his actual salary through book deals for the folk song collections he published and through research grants. And the result of this is 
He didn't actually have a regular office in the library, so we didn't get all that much mail for him while he was doing fieldwork. His correspondence mostly remained with his family and is now at the University of Texas. So I found out from his biography by Nolan Porterfield, which is called Last Cavalier, that there's a letter relating to this trip in Lomax's papers in Texas. So our Lomax curator, Todd Harvey, and the fantastic staff at the University of Texas's Briscoe Center for American History got me a scan of that letter. What did it say? It's actually quite funny. It's a letter from John A. Lomax to his then fiance Ruby. And the return address is by the side of the road. And it contains many personal details intended for Ruby, but the most relevant passage is this one. And I'm quoting directly from the letter. Now Alan is going alone 40 miles with Alberta to find Becky, her singing partner, not certainly known to be alive. These two old slave women sang for Mr. McElhenney over a hundred spirituals before the war songs which make up the entire text of his book. We are now after the music. I can't go because over these roads the car might go down. Alberta is hefty. There is a lot of inside work waiting for me or someone else, and Alan's wings are a quiver with impatience for freedom and independence. Hmm. This reveals what must have happened. McElhenney had at first put the Lomaxes in touch with Alberta Bradford, who, as Josh said, he knew since his own childhood. She had been born as a slave of his parents. When the Lomaxes arrived at Bradford's home on June 17, 1934, they found that Becky Elsie no longer lived within a few miles. She had apparently moved to a home near Lake Arthur, most likely with one of her many children or grandchildren. Lomax's statement that Elsie was not certainly known to be alive suggests that it had been some time since Bradford or McElhenney had seen her. So this unlikely trio of Alberta Bradford and the Lomaxes realized they had a problem. The previous day's torrential rainfall had left the roads awash with mud. The recording equipment and batteries were heavy, and the result was that the Lomaxes couldn't be sure the car could carry all three of them, as well as the equipment, as far as Elsie's new home and back, without breaking down or getting stuck in the mud. Now, John and Alberta were both rather stout, and although Alan Lomax was a bit hefty in later years as I knew him, he was at that time a slender youth of 19. So the course of action they decided on was that John Lomax would have to stay behind because of his weight, and Alan and Alberta drove off together. Okay, so what does this letter tell us that we didn't know before? Well, four things seem the most salient. First of all, it tells us that Alan Lomax recorded these performances alone without his father at the age of 19. They are among the earliest recordings he made without John A. Lomax being present. And given Alan's importance as a field worker and the massive volume of his collections, that's a significant milestone. Second, it explains the geographical anomalies of the notes and card catalog. It's true that they went to Avery Island to record these two singers, which is in their notes and thus in the catalog. But the 40-mile side trip isn't in their notes. It didn't make it to the catalog except for the disc on which he actually says Lake Arthur. So now we know the recordings were all really made in Lake Arthur, and we know the reasons why. Excellent. Um, what are the two other things that this letter tells us? Well, we can now also guess with greater certainty why the discs are out of sequence, and also why Alan only recorded 10 songs from these women who apparently knew about 120 songs. Okay. And how does the letter help explain these anomalies? Well, there's another passage where Lomax asks Ruby to contact Shirley, his daughter, and get her to send them more discs at once. 
The letter is typed, but he underlined at once twice. He also gives a lot of details as to how she might get them shipped out quickly. So this suggests that it was urgent because they were running out of blank discs. Exactly. I think when Alan Lomax went to Lake Arthur, he had only two blank discs left, the ones now numbered 105 and 106. But there had been a side left blank on another disc several days earlier, which was the A side of the disc now numbered 100. So to capture two more songs, he used that side. This resulted in AFS 100 side A being out of sequence. And that also contributed to the cataloger's confusion about the place of recording, since AFS 99 and AFS 100 side B were both recorded in Iberia Parish near Avery Island. It doesn't make that much sense that AFS 100 side A would have been recorded 40 miles away in Lake Arthur until you realize that the A side was actually recorded days later mm. than the B side. So a careful field worker would try to avoid this kind of confusion, but any good field worker would certainly bend that rule if there were no more sides to use. And I think keeping these songs in our collective memory was the most important imperative for Alan Lomax and the singers alike. So Alan used all five sides available to him and managed to get 10 songs. There's, a, there's 11 performances, but one of the songs is performed twice. So we got 10 full songs out of them. Amazing. Um, so Josh, any comments on this remarkable story? Yeah, I think that that's just hilarious and fascinating. Uh, and I'm, and it, I'm just kind of amazed Stephen pieced that all together. Um, and and it's really interesting. Yeah, Steve uh, mentioned that this was one of the, the, the first times Alan was really kind of on his own, you know, kind of going rogue. And that, that in itself is kind of an interesting thing because he had different interests and different kind of instincts, I think, from his, fa from his father. And I think, uh, I mean, I think they both had good instincts uh, oftentimes, you know, when really hunting out material, but, but Alan, you know, I think was really interested in, in, in deep African-American roots music and con connections to the sort of um, broader African story of roots music in the, in the Americas, you know, and, uh, and I think that this was, I think in Louisiana is where he kind of, he kind of got his interest in a lot of that peaked, you know, and I think you can even point to, to really this uh, time period that we're talking about in, in, um, uh, in Jefferson Davis Parish and around Lake Arthur, because he not only recorded Becky Elsie there, but he also recorded some uh, some really interesting um, singers, a guy named Jimmy Peters, uh, Joseph Jones, um, singing singing Jure songs, uh, which is sort of like um, Creole. I think of it as Afro, Afro Creole ring, ring shout singing, uh, spiritual singing, you know, with a, a call and response. Um, sort of polyphonic, uh, polyrhythmic uh, body per percussion accompaniment, you know, um, and um, and it and it's interesting that he, I think that he he was recording um, those folks by himself as well, and uh, and some of the um, some of the field notes and some of the correspondence indicates that he was doing so um, under under some challenging circumstances as well. I mean not just the rain and John Lomax, John Lomax's weight being a factor, but, uh, but, uh, apparently, um, you know, the sheriff was kind of on his trail, uh, that knew, knew that he was, it, it, you know, this happened to him elsewhere in the South, but the sheriff was suspicious of him and he was kind of having to get, uh, smuggled into places. Um, but then you think about that in the context of some of these songs, you know, which you think about the broader, older context of spiritual singing and, uh, you know, uh, you know, especially kind of like extra ecclesiastical vernacular spiritual singing, like the ring shout might have been. You know, um, he was going into these into these uh, situations where he was, you know, he hearing music that I don't know 
if many white people around Louisiana or really in very many other places in the Southern United States or elsewhere were really hearing, you know, uh, and recording. But, uh, but I, I became really interested in it and I'd like to dig in, into it more um, about, about the, uh, the sort of, sh- I guess you would say intertextuality between, uh, between spiritual singing and the jure singing. Um, I started noticing that a lot of these formulaic elements in the songs that you found in some of the spirituals that the, uh, Bradford and Elsie were singing were also being repeated in, in Creole French in the jure songs. And in some cases, in the jury songs are weaving in and out of, of, uh, of Afro-Creole French and, and, back, and back into English, you know. And a lot of those same songs show up in Mardi Gras Indian um, songs and also in uh, Gullah Geechee uh, ring shout singing, you know. But, but it sort of, he was just like, hitting on this great like deep well i'll use a is it a smithsonian term the deep, deep river of song you know this really deep old river of like foundational african-american oral tradition um at work not just in the spirituals but also in those jure songs that he found around the same time great let's hear one of those <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned ring shout because you know, neither McElhenney nor the Lomaxes use that term to describe Bradford and Elsie's singing, partly because there's just the two of them when they're recorded. But if right. you look at the descriptions that McElhenney gave um, of the way those songs would have been sung when there was a whole church, I mean, it is ring shout. It's the same tradition, obviously. It's just uh, that they were recording two people alone. So it was it didn't have that same structure. But in its sort of natural habitat, you'd have to imagine that this is just one tradition. As you say, Deep River of Song, it's it's the same tradition across the South. And the Jure is just that the French, you know, the French language uh, version of that tradition as well. So right. yeah, all, all connected in a very deep level. So Josh, let's talk about some of the songs. The one we heard before was Adam in the Garden Pinning Leaves. What comes to your mind about that song? Well, well, that's actually one of those songs that also, show, if I remember correctly, also shows up in the ring shout singing um, off the coast of Georgia in that Art Rosa, Rosenbaum uh, wrote about. And, it does. Uh, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And and uh, and, and it, as well as a, a couple of other places. But I mean, I think the story there is and this is a thing you see, see quite a bit in spirituals is, uh, you know, there's an image or a story from the Old Testament that's sort of a. Uh, extracted in this case it's adam and adam and eve are in the garden and they're naked and so they're you know they're pinning leaves uh to hide their to hide their nudity presumably if i remember uh the song correctly but uh but then they'll take that and then they'll kind of uh add a lot of repetition call and response um if i remember correctly uh, you know in the um in the sea islands version um in the georgia version there's also kind of a pantomime um, of sorts, you know, where they're kind of making motions of pinning leaves and doing, doing things, which is another characteristic of, of those performances. But, uh, but that's a, 
I mean, I, I don't know that, that these songs are just amazing. They're They can be funny. They can also be like hauntingly beautiful and, and, and uh, so plugged into this, like this deep well of, uh, of imagery, you know, of, of, of old Testament imagery. We're not all, not all just old Testament imagery. Sometimes, sometimes um, new Testament, but oftentimes uh, Hebrew Bible imagery and, uh, you know, uh, particularly the story of Exodus, obviously um, this, I mean, there's a hugely enormously well-documented, cases of, of African-American song drawing on the, uh, drawing on the, the story of the Exodus, you know, as kind of a covert way of speaking about, uh, about slavery and desire to be free, free from slavery, you know? So, uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I became really obsessed with just the poetry of it. Honestly, when I, when I was, when I was doing the work on these songs, researching them and it's fascinating. Yeah. De- I mean, deeply evocative, um, songs for sure. And, and we want to play one more, but we do want Alberta Bradford and Becky Elsey, our two hidden folklorists featured in this segment, uh, to get the last word. So the song is Thank God Almighty, I'm Free at Last. Uh, Josh, before we go into it, what are your thoughts on this song? Well, I mean, it's it's a kind of a poignant, poignant song, you know. Uh, I don't know where else, I'm sure in the Library of Congress, there are many other recordings of, of formerly enslaved people singing the song Free at Last. But I mean, this is certainly one that stands out, I think, you know, so it's poignant, obviously, for that reason, you know. Um, I mean, and that, you know, that phrase is, is used in Martin Luther King's famous, famous speech. But uh, I don't know, I mean, for, for Southern Louisiana and for our area, you know, this is, these recordings are really the the best recordings that I know of, of, of spiritual singing uh, and tell just kind of a fascinating, a fascinating story uh, about, about how, how the African-American experience and the African-American song um, evolved in Southern Louisiana that I don't think we'd really have documented in audio anywhere else if it wasn't for these recordings, certainly not documented so well uh, with the, with the additional reference of of that book, you know, and McElhenney's remembrances, you know? Um, So it's just a, I don't know. I mean, it's a fantastically powerful document, you know, uh, that song and and the the entire collection of these, of these uh, ladies, you know? Yeah. I'll just say I got goosebumps when I first heard it to hear these singers who'd been born in slavery, sing this song saying free at last, free at last, thank God almighty I'm free at last. And as you say, to think about what that song has meant in American history, being part of Dr. King's, I have a dream speech also it's, it resonates down the years in these ways. And to hear this early recording and to know that these two women singing it had been born in slavery and gone through emancipation and gone through hard lives under Jim Crow, also reconstruction and you know into the Jim Crow era. It's just amazing to hear their actual voices singing this song. So before we hear it, Josh, we just want to say thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to uh, reconnect with you. And we should mention that one of the fruits of Josh's Kluge Fellowship at the library is a standalone website called Lomax1934.com, at which all the 1934 Lomax, Louisiana recordings, including the ones we're talking about today, can be streamed. We also want to thank our engineer, John Gold, and all the colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who help us deploy this podcast. And now to sing us out, Alberta Bradford and Becky Elsey with Free at Last. Thank God, my God, free and 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 free and
This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.